Hi, this is Paul, and you're listening to a special mini session from our Next Up event that we hosted during the Arroyo Seco Weekend Music Festival in Pasadena, California. In this episode, we speak with Benjamin Ball, partner at Ball Noguez Studio. Ben tells us about the process of working at the intersection of art, architecture, and product design while discussing various fabrication and production processes that the firm has previously employed. So we're with Benjamin Ball of Balnagas. How are you doing, Benjamin? Good, thank you. You describe your practice as informed by the exploration of craft and the design of production itself. So I'm, I'm wondering, why does this matter? Why, does, why do you exhibit process and not just the final form? I'd say I'm interested in the process, but the process is not always necessary for understanding the work. And I, I don't want the work to be one-dimensional in most cases. But the working method that we use is one where we are in search of a process, understanding, optimizing a process so that we can employ it to make something unique. And we, we, we look for opportunities for it once we've developed a level of confidence with it. But then I kind of change hats from being a kind of fabricator, wannabe industrialist to being somebody who tells more conventional stories about the design, I think. I don't want the work to be, we don't ever want the work to be primarily viewed through the lens of production, but that is a big part of it. So, if you can excuse me for asking one more question about it, then uh, I hear that you sometimes even invent your own machines in order to do these processes. Can you tell me about that? Sure. Well, we do. We create a lot of machinery, a lot of setups for production that are, I suppose, proprietary or our own, you know, but in the scheme of one off fabrication, I don't think that that's particularly unique. I think that there's anybody who's in the business of making things in new ways is going to often, you're going to see people who are building machines. Fabricators build tooling, but in our case, the tooling is, if you say, for example, you were building, you were stamping parts or you were forming sheet metal, you would build tooling for that. Uh, if you were building a custom car, you might have to build tooling for it. We build tooling to handle the production of components that are often in series, and there's a lot of them, and they're all unique. So we're, we're building unique tooling machinery to uh, make projects. Great. So one of the kind of central things that we're talking about today is installation architecture, and you guys obviously do a lot of that. I'm wondering if there is a kind of experience that you try and cultivate through these installations. I wouldn't say that there's a single type of experience that I'm after. It's probably our blessing and a curse against Balnogas to be to have a lot of interests. We do we don't aim for a particular experience. Sometimes we make something which is meant to in the case of a an installation for a festival, it might be about the refraction of light. It might be about making a, a kind of permeable enclosure which creates a 
psychological respite from this, what's around us. And I'm looking at, you know, the kind of chaos of a festival. So the types of experience that we're after are different. And it depends really upon our thinking at any particular time. I mean, we're, we're very intuitive about where our projects can go. And we're not often beholden to some kind of rigid rhetoric about what it means. But, you know, in, we have done projects. I guess what, what, what you ha- we have to look at is where does the interest, where is the energy and the intention lie in the project? Oftentimes, as you said, it is in, it's an interest in a production process. But those production processes yield fairly unique things. And then the thing itself can be can be understood in a variety of different ways. It could be understood as as a particular kind of experience. It could be understood as a, a as a critique of the particular building process. It could be understood as in the case of a project we did at Coachella last year as a an innovation in temporary architect in the technical production of temporary architecture. In that the building itself or the structure itself was disposable and compostable you know but but there isn't you know we've we've also worked with really inorganic <laughs> materials that are never going to break down in a landfill but it was a different set of interests that were driving those projects i'm interested to hear about this critique of uh building processes can you give me an example of that yeah i mean i think that that project at coachella last year was a, a good example of that we had been doing We've done several projects in this kind of a context, and we were watching it become normalized within the architectural conversation. It was just becoming a kind of everyday part of it. And we wanted to do something which spoke to to the long-term life cycle of material in these types of projects. And we wanted to make the long-term prospects for the material visible to, and part of the conversation and part of one's reading of the work, we wanted to make that part of it, to provoke a conversation about that. Uh, In material terms, this was pulp, right? Yeah, it was pulp, paper pulp, right. But, you know, it's not like we woke up one morning and said, I've got to get out and critique this phenomenon of temporary festival architecture. It was a process that we'd been working with and trying to find a use for it. And there'd been a lot of ideas that had been bubbling up and in our experiments with pulp. And we'd made lamps, we'd made kind of sculptural objects, we'd made kind of little things that could be maybe make become components of buildings, but we'd never thought about making something like the scale of a building. And we got this opportunity to do something at Coachella that year and all of the sort of the stars aligned and we thought, you know, this would be a, a perfect chance for us to try this process and to try to talk about it or to propose it as being a, a prospective material that could have a different meaning than, say, what I'm in right now in terms of long in terms of life cycle. It could break down. It could be disposed of. It was like designing a, a paper cup for a single use you know, a cup of coffee versus a ceramic cup or a stainless steel cup for a cup of coffee. 
you know, there's a you keep this you keep the stainless steel cup and the ceramic cup, but the, we don't expect to keep the paper cup that gets tossed. So that project was sort of the paper cup of architecture, festival architecture for a sort of disposable architecture. But you know, do we have? Is that like our agenda all the time? No. Not at all. It's not always our agenda. It was a, a process and a, um, a method of making something that was in search of, 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 a, of a use, in search of a meaning. And I think we found it and, and aligned it with an opportunity in that case. Would you say that's uh, how it usually goes? Material experimentation and then yeah. the formation of their Yeah, content? yeah. But I don't, like, you know, Gaston and I both are pretty clear about, like, we don't want to be understood as being... We don't want the material experimentation, the process experimentation to be limited to, say, like an academic frame where those issues are isolated and dissected, oftentimes to the exclusion of other meanings. And, you know, how is it perceived in the public? How does it, what's the experience of being in it? How does it affect light? What are the economics behind it? Are there any sort of new geometrical issues that you're addressing? You know, we don't want it to be simply framed in a, as a kind of a material exploration. And that's why we do it in these types of venues, so that we can explore other things. Okay. The economic aspect of architecture, that's something that's, is that a big concern of yours? Yeah, I think we're, we're always looking for a way to make formal extravagance on a dime. Nice. <laughs> I mean, that's one thing we try to do. And I think that, you know, a lot of good architecture, a lot of architecture that I've admired over the years has always been able to, I can always see, I can see in it some, a really deep exploration of what a particular process and a particular material can yield because that architect was working within a, you know, they, they were working within a, um, a limited budget. You know, that's not to say that it's the only thing we're going to do for our career, but it's something that's definitely interesting to me. I suppose because it has to, given the opportunities that we have. You know? uh, can you tell me about the, the healing pavilion at Cedar sinai That sounds like a really interesting project. Yeah. That one is not limited budget. That's a, a project that we just finished for Cedar sinai Medical Center. We were working with Abe Landscape Architects on the redevelopment of the podium of the Cedars buildings, which I don't know if you've been un- been over there or were, were there before, but the podium level was a kind of bleak place in this brutalist kind of over, on top of this kind of brutalist uh, parking structure. And then you have these towers and um, it wasn't a particularly, it wasn't at all nurturing as a place. And so Cedars had worked with a few different architects over the years to try to conceptualize something that would make that more of a place that could have some, a place that, you know, you could kind of rest your mind, rest your, your thoughts for a moment, because, I mean, I think that if there was ever was a place that could use good architecture, I think a, a hospital would be one. And typically they have horrible architecture, a lot of hospitals, because they're so driven by codes and by the the processing of patients. So anyway, we were went into the project with Abe, and Abe developed this landscape and then he asked us to create one pavilion within that landscape. So starting with process, in this case, CNC tube rolling and bending, which was something that we had been interested in for several years and uh, hadn't 
yet found an opportunity to do it, to work with it, we decided that that would be a good opportunity to try it. I mean, pavilions are a great place to try a very isolated, in an isolated context, explore a process because you don't have to deal with that. The thing that you make doesn't have to deal with mechanical systems and electrical systems or, uh, you know, MRIs. Or <laughs> So we uh, very quickly investigated how we could build a project for the budget that they wanted to work with and had to find a way to optimize that structure and to develop a kind of nimble working process or workflow so that we could, you know, respond to feedback from the contractors, the fabricators that were were quoting us pricing on the thing. But it in the end what it is is a it's an entirely rolled tube structure. It is a hybrid of a shell, a surface shell, and a cage. So we didn't really have a name for that type of a configuration, so we called it a caged shell. It has, it, uh, the result is something that modulates light, plays with moray, and it creates a quiet place where you can kind of rest your mind in the hospital environment integrated with Abe's landscape. Well, um, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the um, the project, the Rock and Roll Fantasy, and how <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. You, you did that for Coachella back in, I believe, 2008 or 2009? Was it that far Yeah, far it was back? in 2009, I think. And you did that along with your, your studio. Yeah, we did it as a studio at SciArc, yes. So how did that work out, like to develop a, a, a project like that as a as a school you know studio project, well, it was something that Cyark had not done before. They hadn't done a project with Coachella. Of course, they had done design build things, but not quite in this context. So there were some challenges in getting that set up, getting everyone at school kind of comfortable with that. But it didn't take long. I mean, they're open minded people. They they got on board. It was a it was a very limited budget, tiny budget, and we were working with the then curator of the festival, a fellow named Philip Blaine, who decided that he wanted to do something with Cyark. And uh, so he asked, you know, could we set that up? And um, we weren't teaching at Cyark at the time. So I took the idea to Ming Fung and to Chris Genick, and they liked it and they signed us up to do it. But it was run as a a kind of competition between pairs of students within the uh, the studio i think we had a dozen students and so we they paired off into groups into pairs um <laughs> they paired off into groups they paired they paired but it was definitely a curveball for them compared to their typical way of working you know in school you're often told here's a kind of conceptual f- outline of the way that you, we want you to work. You can, as long as you work it within that, you can do what you want to do. There's no consideration for budget. Um, there's no consideration for logistics. In our case, we said there's absolute consideration for budget and absolute consideration for logistics. So your proposals to us, but they can be anything they that you want them to be conceptually. They don't have to fit any kind of conceptual framework other than there has to be some level of appropriateness and you can we can decide what's appropriate for a festival. So for students to sort of um, have to grapple with the 
economics and logistics of, of producing these things was definitely a challenge for them. We had to provide a lot of oversight for that. But the, the, the project, it, it worked quite well because, you know, when you're doing a, something like that, kids, they'll have a lot of interest in their own project. And if their project wins, then, you know, they're interested in it, but then nobody else is interested in it. So in this case, we took, there was, there was one project that was of particular interest because the unit that he proposed, this, a guy named Ben Lloyd Goldstein, he proposed a very interesting unit that we developed with him using a really inexpensive material, PVC tubing, the kind of purple PVC tubing that you see in for non-potable drinking water, which is interesting because that's the stuff that's underneath the entire Coachella field. And he had made this kind of space-defining unit. And then there was another guy... I can't remember his name, but he was working on a project that was flexible plastic. Now, that's not saying much, but the idea was that the entire project could be bent into shape, right? So, like, you make this kind of carpet, and then you could roll the whole carpet with a crane or with a lot of muscular people and actually achieve the shape and the geometry via muscling it, bending it, like the, the way you would fold a piece of cloth or bend a piece of aluminum or something. So... The project was really a hybrid of those two, those two things, which was from a from a teaching standpoint and, and a motivational standpoint was the best possible thing it could be because you had a, two groups then immediately invested in it. It didn't feel like it was anybody's in particular. It felt like it was everybody's project. So there was quickly a process of optimizing the production of these these kind of space defining or these kind of we call them gems these kind of flexible pvc units and uh, you know we had to figure out how to do that quickly how to and then how to connect them together and then you know we bent it into shape we actually bent it with cranes which i think is probably the most to me is still the most interesting part of it because you got a very kind of let's say the kind of geometry that a lot of people spend a lot of time making in computers we just bent it, you know, and, and the natural resistance of the material ensured that that bend was smooth and that that bend was clean and looked intentional, looked, looked controlled. You know, we could take this structure that we're in and bend it, but it would just look broken, right? But in that case, you're bending it and it looks like it's meant to be bent. So that's always been the most interesting part of that project to me. And I, I still really love it. And we, we also worked with my brother who was at the time working at American Apparel and as a lighting designer. And he got hooked us up with all these T5 fluorescent lights and so there's a lighting concept. Yeah, that project came to life at night. Yeah, it yeah. Really, it really was amazing, yeah. yeah. What do you tell people that are completely out of the architecture world, how do you describe your practice? You know, if you're at a party and you know somebody asks you what you do. Yeah, I often tell people, I often adapt what I do according to the context within which I'm talking. I realize that people have a limited attention span and I also realize that I'm a bit of a long-winded. So if it's in an architectural context, I'll say, I, you know, say, well, do you do commercial or residential? You know, you get that, you get that <laughs> question. Maybe you can give me some uh, ideas for the deck I'm going to Right, build right, right. I get that. And I'm like, well, no, it's a little more um, experimental than that. It's a little more theoretical than that. It's more speculative. It's more about the kind of, I get to do all the fun things that architects do 
without the as much regulation and um, without as much client input. I'll say that sometimes. In other contexts, I'll sometimes say that I'm an install. It's installation. It's architectural installation. And in other contexts, when somebody has no clue but no background, I'll say I'm an artist. <laughs> well, you are. I mean, you are an artist, but you're also an architect. Yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, I like to keep it open. It's always been really difficult for me to define myself. I don't, I've never been, when I start defining myself, I get very anxious. Well, I think it's a good thing. I mean, the work that you guys do is extremely unique and always fascinating. And uh, I'm so glad that that you could come by and talk with us today and share a little, uh, little bit about your work. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this mini session. For more information about this show and other shows from this series, check out Arconnect.com. I'd like to thank all of our guests, especially Jimenez Lai and Joanna Grant of Bureau Spectacular for creating the beautiful structure for this event. I'd also like to express our gratitude to Golden Voice, especially Rafi Lair, for encouraging a public discussion about architecture and urban design and for including us in this amazing inaugural event.